let's turn our attention now to God's Word once again as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And just by way of pre-introduction, I guess you could say, it is not my intention to turn over every stone in, in the passage that we will be considering together. There is enough here to preach on until Christ comes again. Um, what I want to do is to attempt, by God's help, to set forth the heart of the particular focus this evening. And I hope in doing so that will stir up in you an appetite to go on your own to this passage and to seek God. Matthew chapter 6, we will begin once again this evening reading in verse number 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, They have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the inspired, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of the living and true God. Let's go to him now in prayer, asking for mercy and grace as we study it together. Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus because He has brought us near by His own blood. And You have in Your grace adopted us as Your sons and Your daughters. You've given us Your Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You've given to us Your all-sufficient Word. Will You come now for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the good of His body, give us Your Spirit that we may understand Your Word so that we may know You rightly, so that we may pray as we ought to, so that Your people may be sanctified. We ask for help, Lord. We stand in no position except that of need. And we trust in You that You are able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even imagine. To You be the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. What a person truly believes is manifested in what they do. Many people say things, many people make professions, many people make claims, many people assert truths. But what they actually believe is manifested in the things that they do. We see this principle set forth in Scripture. In James' epistle, he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now the meaning here, just taking a general principle, not attempting to exegete that text from James 2, but the general principle is simply this. What you say doesn't mean as much as what you do. We see this was one of the sins of the people of old. God says, they draw near to me with their mouth, 
but their heart is far from me. What you do manifests what you truly believe. And now as we bring that general principle specifically applied to personal prayer, we want to ask, if your prayer life was examined, what would it reveal concerning your theology of prayer? You profess the importance of prayer. Perhaps over the past few weeks, as you've learned or been reminded of certain truths, you now once again profess a belief in those truths about prayer. But if we went past what you say, and we went into what you do, your actions, what would be revealed about what you truly believe? What is your true desire in prayer? What is it you truly believe about God in your standing before Him? All of these things are manifested not in a confession of the mouth, but with your practice of prayer. And what we've been seeing over the past few weeks from this Sermon on the Mount given by the Lord Jesus Christ is that our Lord and our God is concerned with the prayer of His people. God cares about why we pray. We see that as Jesus begins this section by pointing out that negative example of the hypocrite. He exposes the motivation of their heart to tell us God is concerned with the motive of the heart when we come to God in prayer. He says, don't pray like that. Don't pray like the hypocrite. When you pray, let your motivation be to simply be with the Father. And let that motivation then be manifested in what you do. Seek out the secret place. Put away the distractions. Shut yourself in unto God. And just as the hypocrite has his reward for his prayer, so the true child of God will have their reward. And then our Lord set forth another negative example to show us that God is concerned with how we pray. Our Lord sets forth the example of the heathen who pray apart from scriptural revelation and in their, their ignorance of God and their ignorance of self and their imaginative prayer, they turn to vain repetition, to empty phrases, to much speaking, either to convince God or to impress God. And our Lord reveals that they are praying from a position of ignorance. They have a false view of God. So He cares how we pray. Don't pray from that position. Don't pray from a position of ignorance. And just like He doesn't prohibit public prayer, He doesn't prohibit persistent prayer. He's exposing the belief behind the practice to tell us what you truly believe is manifested in what you do. Our Lord would have us to understand true prayer is founded upon a relationship between a father and a child. So don't pray that way. Pray as God is your Father who knows what you need. And now, as we move to the actual prayer in the text before us, in addition to all the precious truths we have considered, the Lord shows us in our passage tonight as we will begin to see that God is not only concerned with why we pray. He's not only concerned with how we pray. He's also concerned with what we pray. We see that as Christ gives us a pattern of true prayer. And as we study this pattern so graciously given to us, we want to give special attention this evening to the nature of this prayer, to the substance of this prayer, specifically the approach and the Godward petitions. So reading the passage once again, this is our focus beginning in verse number Nine, as we consider the pattern of true prayer. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Literally, literally, he's saying, this is the pattern which you ought to follow when you pray. He said, don't pray like the heathen. Don't pray like the hypocrite. Pray then like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Literally from the evil one. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The first thing we want to see about the nature of these words is it is a pattern. Christ is setting before His people a pattern of prayer. We can't look at these words and forget what Jesus has just said. Jesus has just prohibited vain repetition. And yet many people come to this text and say, okay, use not vain repetition as the heathen do. Oh, here's a prayer for us to just repeat. Empty, mechanically, vainly, by rote. We see this in the so-called church of Rome. We see this as the practice of the high Anglican church in the church of England, the Episcopalians. We see so many people set aside what Jesus has just said and take this gracious pattern given to God's people and turn it into a means of disobeying and dishonoring God Himself. Jesus has just condemned vain repetition and prayer by rote. So we must not see this as a prayer that is given to us to turn into a vain Repetition. This is not to be recited mechanically. It is a pattern. It is a guide. It's a table of contents, if you will. An outline setting before us the main categories of Christian prayer that are to be followed, that are to be focused on, that are to be expanded and opened up. And we see that. In fact, the very language here, we see Jesus says, after this manner or in this way, or like this, pray. The Greek word is utos, and it means I'm about to set before you a pattern. Instructions. Follow these steps. Follow and expand these categories. We see that also in what our Lord does not say here. He doesn't say, when you pray, use these words. He says, after this Manner. So we see that this is not a command to use particular words. Because if we, if we buy into that lie, that there is some kind of power or efficacy to these particular words, we find ourselves now once again in the position of the heathen. This is rather a command to follow a particular pattern. For the substance of your prayers to follow particular content. And now, zooming out from this passage to get a a, a larger view of all of Scripture, when we consider the analogy of faith, nowhere else outside of where the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly referred to, is given, do we see these specific words used in Scripture. If we think about the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane, He doesn't go and in the travail of His soul say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. But that wasn't His prayer. Consider the apostles in the upper room, Acts chapter 1, as they are seeking in obedience to Scripture to obey, to fulfill the prophecy of let another man take Judas' office. They do not say, everybody gather around. Now remember how Jesus told us to pray. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven. It's not what they did. Consider the prayers of Paul as he is writing to different churches. Specifically, this is one that we've been going through the book of Colossians at our church. He opens Colossians chapter 1 with this prayer. He says, And it is my prayer that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He doesn't say, I'm praying for you, Colossians. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This particular prayer is never used word for word. However, in every prayer we find in the Scripture, we find the categories that are set before us here in this prayer. We see Christ in Gethsemane as He goes and in the travail of His soul and the agony of the wrath that He will bear for His people, He says, in essence, one of these requests, Thy will be done. Consider the... Apostles, again, in the upper room, they say, Lord, show us whom Thou hast chosen to fulfill this office. That is an opening up and a practical applying of Thy will be done. Paul, to the church at Colossae, as he's praying 
for their advancement in the faith, for their life to be walked in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's praying for advancement of the hallowing of God's name in the hearts of His people. He's praying for a furtherance of the kingdom to advance and spread, not only in the hearts of His people, but to those around them. So we see this is not a command to use specific words. It is a pattern to follow. Now, those of you who are familiar with Luke's giving and record of what's been called the Lord's Prayer, you're saying in your head, well, wait a second. When Luke records this prayer, he records Jesus as having said, when you pray, say this. So, we want to understand this is not a contradiction. God is not the author of confusion. The fact that it is set before us as a pattern in Matthew 6 does not mean that it cannot and should not be prayed word for word at times. It just means true prayer is more than simply repeating these words. And when this prayer is prayed word for word, there must be understanding. There must be sincerity. There must be purity. And there must be genuine passion for God and His glory and the good of His people. Otherwise, you will find yourself like Nadab and Abihu coming before the Lord, worshiping Him in a way that He has not commanded and is not pleased with. So this, first of all, we need to note is a pattern to follow. Secondly, we want to note concerning the nature of this prayer, it is a prescription. This pattern is given to us by way of imperative. It is a command. Jesus does not say, if you guys are okay with patterns, if you think better in terms of categories, here's something for you to try. He sets this prayer before us by way of a command. After this manner, pray. I'm commanding you how you ought to pray. This means very simply, you are not free to pattern the arrangement and the content of your prayer according to your own preferences. You don't come into prayer and structure everything around your felt needs or your emotions or your traditions. This pattern of prayer is the commanded, prescribed pattern from God to His people. And we ought not hear that as some kind of tyrannical, impractical restriction. We must understand, as with all of God's commandments, these commandments must be received in light of His character and His goodness. We hear in 1 John 5, His commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. This isn't to restrict us and hinder us in our prayer. This is to help us and aid us in our prayer. Remember, our Lord has just told us in Matthew 6, the Father knows what we need even before we ask Him. So this pattern of prayer is given to us by a Father who knows what we need. He says, I know you need to know how to pray. Pray then like this. And this Father who gives us this pattern is good and does good. You remember that promise also found in 1 John 5. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. So there is a way in praying according to God's will here, according to this prescription, to pray with confidence. This is the prayer of faith. It's what confidence means. With faith. This is how we pray with faith. According to the will of of God. This is how we rest assured that our petitions are heard favorably and answered perfectly, only in so far as we're praying according to the God to God's will. So true Christian prayer then must be conformed to God's will. And we know where God has revealed his will in his word. We must not set the sufficiency of scripture aside when we come to prayer. Prayer is personal. That's what we're talking about, personal prayer. But that does not mean the sufficiency of Scripture and our obligation to obey God's commandments are set aside when it comes to prayer. 
The truth of of the sufficiency of Scripture is a comfort for us here. This pattern sets before us that Scripture is sufficient and that God is good and that this is how we ought to pray. As we consider the nature of this prayer, it isn't just a pattern, it isn't just a prescription. We also want to remember it is a privilege. It is a privilege. The words set before us, the categories that they bestow upon us, sets before us something that belongs exclusively to the people of God. This prayer can only be claimed by the true child of God. Because only a true child of God can approach God as Father. Only a true child of God can make petitions as a child. This is not the blind groping about of spiritual darkness, of men trying to feel their way toward God. This is not uh, uh, the, the family that's just faced tragedy and so the dad walks outside of the hospital room and says, God, if you're there, I need some help. That's not... That's not prayer. That's not true Christian prayer. This is someone whom God, as we spoke about last week, has set His eternal love upon, has sent His Son to shed His blood to redeem them, has given them His Spirit, and now He says, Come and ask Me. I am your Father and you are My child. This is not a creature coming before the Creator. This is not merely a criminal coming before a judge. This is the intimate privilege of a child coming to their Father. And it's this reality of adoption where the prayer begins. So we see the nature of the prayer. It is a pattern. It is a prescription. It is a privilege. And now we want to look at the prayer itself. We want to consider the substance of the prayer. And the prayer breaks down into three parts. We find in this prayer our approach to God. We find our petitions before God. And we find our praise to God. And so this evening we'll take the first half of that and we'll consider the approach and the first petitions, Lord willing. The first thing we're taught in the prayer is how we are to approach God. Now a lot of us, if we are honest... This is probably one of the most disregarded aspects of prayer by anyone. Very few people take into account or even come to the scripture to ask the question, how ought I to approach God in prayer? He says these words, our Father. Our approach to God in prayer is to be one of adopted intimacy. As we've been talking about last week, hinted at already this week, prayer is an invitation to come away as a child with their father. Prayer is us coming before God as His child, coming before God, claiming all of the rights of His child, coming with all the confidence of a child. Now, it's very important here, and I'll just stay on this very briefly since we spent most of our time here last week. You must not let your experience with your earthly father formulate the way you approach God as your heavenly father. Some of you had an absentee father. You don't know anything about him. There's mystery. There's hurt. There's sorrow. There's questions. There's doubt. There's confusion as to his love for you. You mustn't bring that into your approach before God. God is not an absentee father. God has not left any room for confusion or for doubt or for question about His love for you and His intentions to do you good. Some of you may have had an abusive father. The most memorable thing in your mind about your father is a belt or a fist. And if you bring that mentality to prayer, you will shy away from approaching God at all. God is not like that. He's not a vindictive God toward His children. His wrath has been poured out on His Son. You stand now before Him and there is no condemnation. You do not face His, uh, his judicial wrath. It's been paid for. So don't let that drive your approach to God. But also, some of you had a passive father. A father who gave you whatever you ask for. A father for whom discipline didn't matter. 
A father who was so enamored and so fascinated with you. A father that you were his entire world and you kept him under your thumb. Don't approach God like that. He's not a father like that. But you must approach him as father. And that means, reminding you from last week, you approach him with this position of affection of protection, of provision, of instruction, of care, of discipline, of delight, of promises, and your entire identity and your eternal inheritance is guaranteed you by the Spirit He has poured upon you. So you approach Him as His child. However, He goes on. doesn't just say, Our Father, hallowed be Thy name. He says, Our Father in heaven. This is a command to stop and remember who your Father is. Not just how He is, but who He is. He is in heaven. Now we know, we could ask the children from the children's catechism, where is God? God is everywhere. So we're not talking about God's corporeal geographic location. We're not saying your father is secluded and limited to a particular geographic location somewhere off high in heaven. What the language here is calling us to remember is our approach must recognize our father as one who is high and exalted. Isaiah 57 we read, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. This tells us when we see that He is our Father in heaven, He's the holy one. He is the one who constantly around His throne, there are angelic beings proclaiming His holiness. He in His holiness is separate and other. He is unique. There is nothing like Him. He is above and apart from creation. He is above and apart from corruption. You must not think of Him like you, just a little bigger. Or like you, just a little better. He's altogether different. There is no other God. He alone is the holy and high one. He is light. In Him there is no darkness. In Him there is no possibility of darkness. He in His holiness cannot take pleasure in sin. He in His holiness cannot look upon sin. He in His holiness cannot fellowship with sin. So you must remember, your Father is the Holy Father who sits on high. The grace of God manifested in Christ has not changed the holiness of God. We see this brought to bear in that great passage in Hebrews 12. As we have Mount Sinai with all of its terror and all of its dread. So horrible. Moses says, I tremble with fear. They couldn't bear the commandment. If even a goat touches the mountain, you stone it. It was shrouded in darkness and fire and thunder and the earth shook. But we haven't come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festive gathering, to the spirit of the firstborn made perfect. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So come and trample in flippantly? No. So let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. Remember that as you approach Him in prayer. Also remember, He is in heaven. This reminds us of His sovereignty and of His omnipotence. The Scripture tells us in multiple places like Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Nebuchadnezzar recognized this. The Most High He does according to His will in the inhabitants of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can stay His hand. No one can say to Him, what have you done? He's established His throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. This means He has unlimited, unrivaled, absolute authority over all things. And He is at work exercising that authority to do whatever He pleases. 
And that sovereign authority is met with this omnipotence. And not only does He will what He pleases, but He has the power to accomplish what He has willed and actually do what He pleases. So we must understand that our approach to God is not coming to inform Him. It's not coming to send Him back to the drawing board. It's not bringing Him pieces to put things back together. He is our Father in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. He is the sovereign, almighty God. Your Father in heaven is holy and sovereign and almighty. This reminds us of His majesty, of His splendor, of His character, not His distance. That passage from Isaiah 57 tells us, although He is the High and the Holy One who inhabits eternity, He condescends to dwell with the lowly. So this is not intended to say, God's way over here, your way over there, good luck spanning the distance. It's about His majesty. It's about coming into prayer in a way that recognizes who He is. Our Father is not the old man upstairs. He's the almighty everlasting God. So yes, there is boldness to come and approach in Christ's name because of what He has done. Because we've been adopted, there is confidence to come. But don't think that your adoption has ripped God off of His throne and put Him in your passenger seat and He's just a buddy you're going out with. Approach with acceptance, approach with joy, approach with confidence, but approach with reverence and awe because He is a consuming fire. So what does that look like? I think it begins with not saying anything. What Martin Lloyd-Jones called recollection. What the book of Ecclesiastes puts forth by putting your hand on your mouth. Don't utter a word. Be still. Pause. Recall to mind who you are approaching. Recall to mind His majesty. Recall to mind and try to grasp some biblical truth concerning His glory. Think about His holiness and His sovereignty and His might. And then think about your unworthiness. Think about your sin and your shame and the distance that exists between God and man. And think about His infinite mercy, His everlasting love, His grace in Christ that you can now draw near by the blood of His Son. And then when your heart understands something of who He is and something of what it means that He is your Father because of Christ, come and simply with confidence and reverence say, Father, don't rush in. Sit still before the Lord. This is how we approach with confidence, but with reverence. He is our Father, but He is in heaven. And after Christ sets before us the approach, then He begins to give us the petitions. And as we want to consider the petitions, we see what ought to be primary, what must be in the forefront, what must be utmost and supreme in the prayers of God's people is the glory of God. Prayer does not start with, give me, give me, give me, fix me, fix me, fix me, heal me, heal me, heal me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. True prayer does not begin with me, nor does it begin with men. The first matter that ought to be laid before God the Father in prayer is that God would be glorified above all things. Now that's simple. All of us are like, well, yeah. Course, but how much of your prayer works that way? What we truly believe is manifested in what we do. This first petition comes to us in these words Hallowed be thy name. Now, I would say at this point in our walk with the Lord, most of us are familiar enough with the truths of Scripture to understand that the name of God is representative of God Himself. God's name reveals who He is. We see His name Yahweh, Jehovah, the I Am, the true and the living God. This reminds us that He is independent. As we were mentioning last week, He is ase, self-existent. He needs nothing. 
He is immutable. He is impassable. He is infinite in every way. He is most sovereign, most free, most absolute, most loving, most gracious, most merciful. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the everlasting God. His years know no end. He is the Most High, the Almighty, the Sovereign who does according to His will. He is the Creator of all things. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Before Him the nations are a drop in the bucket. He is the High and Holy One in whom there is no darkness at all. And before Him even the heavens are not pure. All of this and an eternity's more is communicated to us in His name. So when we're saying, hallowed be thy name, his name refers to all of his divine perfections, all of his divine beauties, all of his divine majesties, all of those things by which he has made himself known in his word. And by asking that his name be hallowed, we're asking that God himself would be rightly known. That he would be properly esteemed. That he would be appropriately reverenced that he would be supremely treasured. This is a request that the name of God would be consecrated, set apart, regarded with such pure esteem that it's in a category all by itself. This is a prayer that says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. For thy mercy and thy truth's sake, let your name, the very manifestation of who you are, let it be reverenced, let it be esteemed, let it be held and treasured, let it be worshipped as holy, set apart, so high, so esteemed, so glorious, so magnified, that everything else is just ashes and dust and dung in comparison. It begins with this in our own life. Lord, let this be true in my own life. Tear down the idols in my life that compete with your glory. Tear down everything that would stand in opposition against you. Let it be thrown into the pits of hell with every vain and abominable thing that distracts or takes away from your glory. From you, through you, and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever and ever. Let your name be hallowed. This is the primary concern of prayer. This is where it begins. This is chief. This is supreme. This is position number one. We know that included in the revelation of God's name is this truth. The Lord will not hold him blameless who takes his name in vain. How his name is taken in vain. How it is marred. How it's twisted by blasphemous imagination by flippant notions, by traditions and man-made religion. This prayer comes before God in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, begging God that all of these imaginations, that all of these traditions, that all of these vain notions, that they would all come and be conquered by the truth of God's Word. Begs God that all the tainted worship according to speculation be subjected to the Scriptures so that God might be properly esteemed and reverenced and glorified as He ought to be. This is not, this is not a prayer that causes us to come before God and set before Him all the specks and all the eyes around us. This is a prayer that when it's done properly shows us the logs that are in our own eyes. It's easy to see how God's name is taken in vain as people run around a room with a flag hollering like a monkey. It's hard to see how God's name is taken in vain when we pray half-hearted, empty prayers devoid of meaning without any engagement of the mind or heart. How much of your prayer life is concerned with the glory of God? We pray for revival. We groan as we see the nonsense of what parades itself as worship all around us. But we want to ask, is that travail of the soul for the glory of God or for our system? Can that be reduced down to we wear a different jersey than you so we're going to chant for our team? Or are we genuinely filled with zealous rage because the name of God is being taken in vain? 
This is where we pour it out in prayer. Let your name be hallowed. Look at the people. Their gods are worthless idols. And they tribute your name to those vain imaginations. Oh God, tear down the idols of these men. But it must also be applied to your own life. Those idols of work and family and children and marriage and traditions. Let your name be hallowed. We see the second petition. It follows that pattern concerning God and His glory. It gives, comes to us in these words. Thy kingdom come. So there is a logical progression here. As soon as we pray for God's name to be hallowed by ourselves and by others, we immediately realize that's not the case. God deserves to be honored and reverence and esteemed. We long for Him to be honored and reverence and esteemed. And that is not the case. Why? Because men are enemies of God. They belong to another kingdom. They are citizens of a different domain. They sit in darkness, in the bondage of sin, in depravity. As we pray for God's kingdom to come, we confess this. that God has set on Zion His King. His holy hill has a king seated, enthroned above everything else. All authority in heaven and on earth is His. And as it is now, that king rules and reigns not as some political power, not as some regime seeking to take over all of the nations of the earth with political force. It is a sovereign, redemptive rule in the hearts of His people through His Spirit. So this prayer says, Lord, those people sitting in darkness, they need to see a great light. And the light of life has come. Let the light go forth to those in darkness. This is a a missionary prayer. God, will you raise up laborers and send them into the harvest? And by means of these laborers, kick down the doors of the domain of darkness and transfer your people to the kingdom of your beloved Son. This is a prayer that pleads for the Lordship of Christ to be confessed and cherished by every tongue under heaven. It's the desire that God's kingdom would advance in the hearts of His people. So as we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we know that will only happen in Christ. So we pray for His kingdom to advance, to spread, to go further, to conquer the nations. And as we pray that, we ought to remember there are thousands and millions and billions of people, entire people groups, millions of families, billions of individuals who still sit in the domain of darkness. So we pray, God, let the gospel go out in your power like a mighty man raged when he is awoken in a drunken stupor. Go out in might. Let your spirit run ahead and let the gospel have free, unhindered course. That's this prayer. But there's also an eschatological reality to this kingdom. We understand that while this kingdom is a spiritual reality now, one day it will be the consummated kingdom over all things. On that day when Christ will come with 10,000 of His holy ones to be glorified in His saints, marveled at by those who believe, He will come with the holy angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. He will come and the nations will look on Him whom they have pierced. He will crush His enemies under His feet. He will bind that great serpent and cast Him into the lake of fire where He will be tormented forever and ever. And He will take His people to Himself. He will wipe away all of their tears. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. The former things are passed away. There will be no more sin, no more veil of separation, no more dim glass. His dwelling place will be with His people. There will be no light in that city, for He Himself will be our light. There will be no temple because He Himself will tabernacle with us. We will see His face. His name will be written on our forehead. We will be made like Him because we see Him as He is. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so as we hasten that day, we pray, Come quickly. 
let your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, let the full realization, the consummation of your kingdom come. Let it come now. You must understand that this petition for the coming kingdom will not come from a heart that holds on to the treasures of this life. If your treasure is here, you can't pray for the kingdom to come because that means you lose everything. But if you have set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, if you understand my life is hidden with Christ in God, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You come to this prayer and with the groanings of your soul, you say, come quickly. If you will not come today, then let me stay here for fruitful ministry. But if you would, would you please come today? Put to death all of your enemies. Conquer sin. Gather your people as a shepherd gathers the sheep and let us be with Christ forever. Let your kingdom come. That's where my treasure is. That's where my heart is. Let your kingdom come. And the final petition we see that is focused Godward is given to us in these words. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we talk about God's will, we know the Scripture uses that term in two ways. We know it refers to the decretive will of God, those secret counsels concerning all things whatsoever come to pass, that before the foundation of the world He has decreed. And we don't know what those things are. The secret things belong to the Lord. But thankfully, we're given a category here that tells us which will we're talking about because we also have the revealed will of God or the prescriptive will of God, that will of God that tells us what He is pleased to require of men. And so that's the will we're talking about. We see that because He says, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, in heaven, before the throne of God, in His immediate presence, His commands are obeyed perfectly. His commands are obeyed cheerfully. And His commands are obeyed completely. But it is not so here on earth. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to His law. Indeed, it cannot. So this prayer is a prayer that recognizes the glory of God is revealed to us in His commandments. And the good of all people is found in obeying God's commandments. And so we look around like the psalmist did and we say, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Oh, how I love your law. Lead me in your commandments. Let me not wander from your commandments. As Zach prayed, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Hide its words in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Let your will be done. My zeal consumes me because my enemies forget your commandments. This recognizes the chief concern of heaven is the glory of God in perfect obedience. So the chief concern in the heart of God's people is for Him to be glorified by our obedience. And so we must recognize this first in our own life. Let your will be done in me. Because when I wake up in the morning, you know what I'll find? There's still another resident in here. And he's waging war against that part of me that loves God's will and wants to obey God's will. And so I come before the Father in prayer. I want to take this flesh captive and subdue it. I want to put the sin to death so that your will will be done in my life. This is what we are praying for. And all of these things come together to show us God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. This is in essence a prayer for God to be glorified. And as the pattern goes on and we see next week... Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because we go from thy name, thy kingdom, thy will to lead us, don't make the mistake of thinking that we're talking about something else now. The pattern here is that God's kingdom and God's will as primary overshadow everything else we need. And in fact, if you really grab a hold of that principle... This is, this is it. This is all that you need to get from this prayer. He goes on to say, Give us this day our daily bread. That's a petition for provision. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is a petition for cleansing and for forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is a petition for protection and preservation. But all of those come under this reality for the desire for God to be glorified. The heart of this prayer is this. Lord, give me what I need so that I can hallow your name. Forgive me, cleanse me, make me new so that I will be a fit vessel in the work of your kingdom. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one so that I can live a life according to your will. Prayer is not a blank check to satisfy your worldly cravings. It's a means for asking what is necessary to fight the fight of faith and live a life for the glory of God. We know our Father knows what things we have need of. And yet, we have this reality. Everything comes under the glory of God. Jesus is going to go on to say in Matthew 6, Don't ask yourself, what do we drink? Or what do we eat? Or what do we put on? The unbelievers seek those things. You seek first what? Kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Live with a kingdom mindset that exists for God's name to be hallowed, that kingdom to advance, and His will to be done. And then here's the promise. All these things will be added to you. When you live for the kingdom, the king provides what you need for the kingdom. This is what prayer is about. So the glory of God is not just where prayer begins. It's the overarching desire of all that prayer is. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we end where we began. What a person truly believes is manifested in their actions. So ask yourself, by the way you pray, is God my treasure? Is God's glory my supreme passion? Is God's kingdom the goal and aim of all that I ask for in prayer. And don't answer that with your mouth. Answer that with your prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Let's pray together.